it's that time again. That's my announcer voice. Not another Philly sports talk show. I'm David Murphy, sports columnist with the Philadelphia Daily News, joined by award-winning columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Mike Sealski. And Dunkin' Donuts coffee drinking. I am the non-award-winning columnist in the room right you now. You won an award at LaSalle. You were the I first. Did. It's been all downhill since the, then. Murph won the College Sports Writer of the Year from the Philadelphia Sports Writers Association. He was the first non-pen student, I believe, to win that award, the first LaSalle student to win that award. So that's quite an achievement. Yeah, well. It really is. I peaked early. <laughs> We're much uh, like Mark Sanchez in that regard. So we're, we're talking today. Uh, Mike and I were talking off air, um, trying to figure out who the next Philadelphia sports team is going to be the one that breaks this cycle of misery that we've, uh, we've been stuck in. When's the last time? Was the Flyers were the last ones in 2013? Is that right? The Flyers made the playoffs in 2014. Oh, did they? Yeah. And wow. uh, lost in the first round of the Rangers. So okay. they were the last team to reach the playoffs. That, that almost doesn't even count. It really kind of doesn't. I mean, when you think about the NHL, I mean, you have to work hard um, to to miss the playoffs. Like, you really do. It reminds me of that Dennis Miller line, like, in terms of uh, trying to kill terrorists. Like, when you're killing people who are willing to kill themselves, you are working hard, my friend. Yes. And that's kind of how th- it is for the for the playoffs in the NHL. Like, if you're missing the playoffs, you're in a bad way. Yeah. You're a really bad way. Dennis Miller, what's he doing now? Uh, still has, I think he has a radio show. I think he's still doing some stand-up. He's on Fox all the time. That um, does not surprise me. Hey. I like Dennis Miller. I do, too. I do, too. I've always liked him. I didn't necessarily like him on Monday Night Football, but I also was in 10th grade and didn't really understand half of the stuff that he was saying. <laughs> uh, but, so, anyway, I think we decided off-air that the Eagles would be the next one to make the playoffs. I think we did. Or no, or the, well, we, we figured the, if the Eagles do not make the playoffs this year, the odds are the Flyers will be the next one. Yeah, th- I think that's true. I mean, obviously... You know, as we've discussed ad nauseum here and off the air, the Eagles could make the playoffs this season going eight and eight, maybe even seven and nine, depending on how things shake out in the NFC East. Um, so, yeah, that's a possibility. But looking at the other three franchise, other three franchises, that franchises, and considering where they're headed and where they've been, I think the Flyers are probably the safest bet uh, to make the postseason next, probably next year. Um, and I think what's interesting about them now is you're getting a sense in the last couple of games, and John Tannenwald, our producer, can chime in on this if he'd like. They brought in this rookie defenseman named Shane Gostaspear, who is one of about a half dozen uh, defensive prospects who they've been really high on. And through two games, the kid is really good. He's really good. You can see the difference between the way he plays and the way the rest of their defensemen and most of their forwards play. I mean, he's just fast. He's sharp at the puck. He can shoot the puck. He's an exciting player. And you can see, okay, if they're right about him, if they're as right about him as they've, if they're as right about the rest of their guys in the minors as they are about him, they're going to be in good shape. Well, well let's, let's hold that thought because no offense to Jonathan Tannenwald or, or Flyers Nation, but we don't I'll take it. Believe me, but we don't want to lose our podcast audience before we. Uh, Fair enough. Before we get Fair it. Fair enough. Um, by talking hockey when we should be talking football. And again, I'm a huge hockey fan. As anybody who knows me. If if I'm any a- of you were in the room at the at the <laughs> present moment, you could see a uh, bleep eating grin on Murph's face. I, I um, muted all the coughing in the room intentionally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, anyway, um, you also couldn't see the motion that I was making underneath the table. It was just, sorry, is that a little overboard? 
If they couldn't see it, then no, it's not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's get on to the Eagles. I was waiting. We're going to discuss. Um, so the Eagles. Mark Sanchez. Can we can we dispel a notion right now that Mark Sanchez is the best person to be playing quarterback for this team, that the Eagles are a better team with Mark Sanchez at quarterback? I've been dispelling it since last year. I've been trying to when there's this contingent of uh, fans, media, etc., who insist that because the guy plays quarterback like he swallowed down 17 dispensers worth of Pez before getting under center, that he's a better option than Sam Bradford or anybody else. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I, I guess I could understand it before last week's game. Um, because, you know, for what, and again, I've said this all, all season, I think Sam Bradford, uh, I, th- I think half of the reason people don't like him is just because he looks so. Right. She doesn't look the part. He does not look the part. Um, and so, I, and, and, and frankly, the offense does move relatively well at times under Sanchez. I thought Sanchez played fine last year. I thought Sanchez and, you know, I understood what they, why they traded away Nick Foles because I thought they weren't markedly better, um, with Foles and Sanchez. Right. Apparently, uh, Jeff Fisher agrees with me, <laughs> but it's surprising. It took him that long to come to that. So, so, so I, I almost, I was a little puzzled by the cheer that went through the crowd when Sanchez went into the game because Sam Bradford was 19 of 25 for 200 some yards while getting absolutely pummeled and yes. was coming off. And frankly, Sam Bradford, other and again, other than those interceptions, um, you know, for four or five games has played very, very Had well. Had played very well and should have been better than 19 of 25. We can get into Miles Austin right. down the road here. Um well, but, we better do it soon because I'm not sure how long Miles Austin is for the old Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> um, but, but then Sanchez goes into the game, and he does exactly what Sanchez has been doing for five or six years now in the NFL, which is doing just enough to get people to the point where they think he might be a guy and then reminding everybody of why he He's is not, not a guy. guy. And, and, and he did it in the exact same manner that had people calling for Bradford to begin with by throwing an end zone interception. So now I'm just puzzled at the, the, the rationale that I've heard all week that people are actually excited to see Sanchez in there. And now maybe this offense will actually live up the expectations. Can you explain this to me? Well, I think it's part of it is the, the veneer of, of Sanchez's quarterback. It's like, it's like watching a New York cabbie drive through the streets of Manhattan and blowing through, you know, red lights and things like that and insisting that the guy is a good driver because he goes fast. <laughs> and that's what it is with Sanchez. He gets in there and you see the tempo of the offense pick up immediately. I don't care what Chip Kelly says, you know, after the game or this week. And, and he said, you know, I, I, th- I thought we were going fast with Sam. It didn't look any different to me with, with Sanchez. Baloney, they were going much faster with Sanchez. And I would argue they went too fast. Yeah. Because there were several plays where he was clearly not on the same page with receivers, running backs. He and he and DeMarco Murray ran into each other on at least three handoffs. It's- and he threw the ball in the back of Murray's head. And at one point on the sideline, I actually had somebody who was on the sideline tell me this. On that play after Sanchez hits Murray in in the back with a throw, Kelly is there on the sideline and he motions to Sanchez, calm down, calm down. And that's been Sanchez's problem. What, what, what Kelly's system, what Kelly wants his system to do in the end really exacerbates the problem with Mark Sanchez, which is 
throughout his career, he has tried to make the great play instead of settling for the prudent play. That's and and that's been my you know I know I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago about maybe it was last week about the Eagles. It was last week um, after Dallas uh, and the Eagles tempo and how it finally looked like it, you know Lane Johnson said it finally looked you know it was the best they've run all year. Sam Bradford said our tempo was great, but I but I think people conflate tempo as a symptom and tempo as a cause. Like right. I, I mean, good tempo is the symptom. Of running good plays right tempo comes after the play tempo tempo does not come before the play it's it, it's one of my hang-ups with with kelly's system overall because i think there is a place for tempo but i think that place is the place that the patriots use it where when thing when they need it when they, they when, turn when it things on. are clicking then they turn it on like for example i don't understand when you throw an incompletion i don't understand the benefit of going tempo that next play or as they did early in the game when bradford was still in there you complete a 60-yard pass to Brent Selleck and then sprint down to the end of the field to run DeMarco Murray into the line of scrimmage. Right. I don't understand it there either because you've got to get all 11 guys down there. It's a, you know, it's a fire drill, yeah. and nobody knows where to go, and nobody gets set, and all of a sudden Murray's tackled for no gain. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, and especially, I mean, you see this, it's a, very similar to the way the Patriots run it, is after a, like, after a play where it makes sense to go tempo, they go tempo, which is usually it's usually a completion, you know, like I don't know, even know if it makes sense to go tempo after a running play that doesn't gain a lot of yards because nothing like, think about it. You're asking guys to unpile themselves off the ground, run back to the line of scrimmage and then fire off the ball again. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of execution involved in that handoff, which, you know, you saw that on the Sanchez Murray play and you actually saw that. I don't think it was tempo related, but um, it might've been in the Dallas game. I, I forget if it was the Dallas game or this past game, but, but you know, Bradford, it was down in the end zone, and, and Bradford actually turned the wrong either Mark either Murray went the wrong way or Bradford turned the wrong way, and he right. ended up handing the ball off to his left with yes. his right hand. And yes. it just like it was one of those plays where you might not have noticed it because nothing bad happened, but something easily bad, something bad easily could have happened. Right. But 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 and 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 I said this earlier in the, in the season. I think it is you know the 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 downside of tempo that that fire drill aspect is exacerbated. When you have new guys in there and guys who aren't as good, like mm -hmm. I, I think Tempo looked great in 2013 because the entire unit played together all year. The offensive line was was very very good and very very healthy. The receivers were very good. Lashawn McCoy was very good. Like you could probably they they Tempo looked great that year because they had great talent executing it. And but as soon as you start moving parts around, right? And the other factor being that the league hadn't caught on to the pattern right. and it, style of plays that Kelly right. was calling. Um, which, you know, two and a half years in now, they realize there are about seven plays that the Eagles run, and that's it. But, it, but it's like, what is the, when somebody's playing well, like when Peyton Manning was at his peak, um, like what do they always say about him? Like the game looks like it's moving real slow for him right, right. now. Like when a rookie, when he's in there and he's struggling, what do they say? You have to slow speed of the, the game the down. Speed of the, game, the speed of the game is just crazy. Like he's, you know, you just got to get used to it. You got to, you know, so it just seems antithetical to, to then speed the game up when you have a left tackle who's playing or a left tackle who's playing his first start at that sec first and second start at that position, right. you know, two backup guards, a center who has struggled this year and, and is playing against, you know, you would think against a guy like not here's, here's the other, uh, here's the other kind of logic, you know, gap, Fallacy, gap yeah. in the logic. 
of the whole play count thing, when you're playing a guy, when you're playing against Nadakam Su and he's dominating you every play, I would think that you would want to limit your plays. Exactly. Yeah, you know? that's right. And and to bring this back to Sanchez, when you have a quarterback whose instinct is to push the play and try to be great when he ought to be smart, those sorts of problems exacerbate themselves. Like I, having covered Sanchez in New York for two years when he was with the Jets, I can tell you that that interception that he threw in the end zone there on Sunday was born out of every single, almost every single mistake I saw him make with the Jets, which was, I need to make a play. I need to make a play. I cannot settle for just surviving until the next down. Even the play that has come to define him as a quarterback at his worst, which is the, the butt, butt fumble, fumble. The butt fumble. Which we can say on the show. We can say, <laughs> yes. I was there that night, and the reason that play happened is not initially because Mark Sanchez screwed up. It's because the running back who was in the play did. Mark turned the handball off. The running back went the wrong way. And instead of just saying, somebody else screwed up, I'm going to fall on the ball and live to go third and nine, Sanchez turns back around and tries to gain six inches and runs into the back of Brandon Moore and the rest is NFL Films Follies history. Is Sanchez's popularity, which as you just said, I was going to tell you earlier, you've been preparing Eagles fans for Sanchez since before you got here. Yeah. Um, is Sanchez's popularity because in all the, in the many years that I've been here, and I gather from many years previous to that, the second most popular athlete in town behind Chase Utley was always the Eagles' backup quarterback? I think that plays a role in it. I think, though, that as we mentioned earlier, people see what they want to see with player with with any player in particular and I think part of it is they see two AFC championship games and they see ooh the Jets are a circus so therefore you know Sanchez is here and he's with Chip Kelly and Chip Kelly you know when he acquired Sanchez was still looked at as you could use the word genius with Chip Kelly and not have people roll their eyes and well Chip must see something in him and when he was in there well except for the interceptions as Murph said except for the interceptions the offense moved really fast. So I think that's all part of it. Um, I, I think it's actually, I don't know that Sanchez was popular until Sam Bradford got here. I, I think it's almost more people just, for whatever reason, decided very early on that they just did not like Sam Bradford. Well, it started with the fact that he replaced Nick Foles. Right. Um, and, and, and I believe that the, the, the a significant majority of the fan base was against that move. Um, and I hope that we will hear from them in the coming weeks is the, the, the fight in case Keenum's rumble <laughs> down the field in St. Louis. But, uh, you know, and, Sam, and again, like Sam, Bra appearance, appearance is everything yes. in Philadelphia. Yes. Um, That's why know, Buddy it, Ryan is still such a popular coach. Yeah, like they, they want a despite guy. Despite never having won a playoff game. They want a guy who looks like he eats nails. And Sam Bradford looks like he he was the last guy issued equipment on the varsity team and had to settle for the JV jersey. Like that's, that's just how he looks. Um, and, and frankly, I think I fell victim to it a little bit when he was in St. Louis because I've actually been like Sam Bradford has played a lot better than I expected. And, he, and he's a lot better quarterback than I expected. Like, I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this in the Dolphins game. Ryan Tannehill. I, I was a, I, I was and is am a very big Ryan Tannehill fan. Um, I think he's doomed in that in the Raiders Raiders East down there in Miami. But but I am a big Ryan Tannehill fan and watching them play on the same field the other day I, I was like you know I, I would take Sam Bradford over Ryan Tannehill I you would know? too um and, and I, I know 
I'm also probably in the minority on Ryan Tannehill, so that's not necessarily saying anything. But I think people decided early on that Sam Bradford looked like he would, he played scared. He you know what he he wasn't Nick Foles. You know he didn't. You know Nick Foles for all his faults, he 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 slung the ball in there and he took hits and mm-hmm. he and he looked like a quarterback. But but I think once Bradford got in there, people are like, well, we'd rather have Sanchez. Right. No, I th- I think what you're playing into. What you mentioned is is absolutely true, and I, I also think something you mentioned on Twitter, I think yesterday, plays a factor in this as well, which is that Philadelphia is so parochial when it comes to its sports teams. I got a lot, and I've been, of, I I've got a saying, lot of crap for that. You better watch out. No, I've been saying this for years, Murph, that, that Philadelphia is so parochial when it comes to its sports teams that they, they don't stop and take a look around to see what else is actually going on in the rest of the NFL or the rest of the Major League Baseball or the NHL or the NBA. There's, there's kind of a lack of perspective. Like that, It's funny because that tweet made me think of Sunday because that was on my mind when I went downstairs. I wanted to get Mike Tannenbaum, who was the Jets' general manager in 2009 when they drafted Sanchez and is now the VP of football ops for the Dolphins. I wanted to get his perspective on Sanchez. He wouldn't give it to me. He wouldn't comment. But here was somebody who had seen... For four years, what Mark Sanchez did in four minutes on Sunday. And that's the kind of perspective that I think often is missing from observers of Philadelphia sports is like, put stuff in context. You think Mark Sanchez is great because you saw him play well for three weeks. Go watch four years worth of Mark Sanchez in New York. That Yeah, that's and, and that's what I was trying to, you know, Twitter obviously is not not the place to make an nuanced argument such as the one that mm-hmm. this probably requires but that 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 is what i was getting at and and as somebody who spent three years I, i've spent a lot of time in a lot of different markets i lived in tampa for three years lived in south carolina for three years i've been around sec fans i've been around all the crazy fans like boston is the only one that i'm not like familiar with and i assume boston is probably a lot like philadelphia but um i don't even know where i was going with that that sec fans are really nuanced no uh, yeah exactly yeah. well yeah <laughs> oh, oh so so actually sec fans are a little uh SEC fans and Eagles fans, it's a great comparison because Eagles fans are, are they're, they're smart. They like they know football, they know the game. Um, like when they see, they, they can, like I'm not saying Eagles fans don't know football. SEC fans are dumb. They don't know football. They're just crazy. They like to like drink and yell at Nick Saban. Um, but Eagles fans are just so absorbed with the team that they don't have that person. Like think about it. I mean, the more time that you spend on philly.com reading about the eagles on wip talking about the eagles you know watching the eagles um you know the less time you're going to be watching anything else in your life Uh, that's right and and i mean it's borne out this entire you know assertion that we're making is borne out quite frankly by television ratings like look at super bowl ratings in this market compared to every other market in the country they are significantly down look for just about any major sporting event that doesn't involve a philadelphia area team, university, franchise, whatever, ratings are always down. You know, even when Villanova makes a, happens to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament, very few people in this market watch because it's not a college basketball market in the way it is a football market or a baseball market. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think the impulse comparison when you see a Bradford, a Foles, or a Sanchez is to think of Donovan McNabb when it ought to be Ryan Tannehill, Colin right. Kaepernick, somebody like well, it's, that. Well, it's like I kept on saying to people. So, so and the perfect. So, so Sam Bradford. I actually, for whatever reason, probably because I gamble a lot, and and the Rams are always underdogs, and I love dogs. Uh, that I'm muting. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it's gambling runs the world right it now. DraftKings and oh, I'm not against it. I'm just saying I don't know if you were supposed. <laughs> This podcast is not sponsored by DraftKings, which makes no, it the sir. only thing in the world not sponsored by DraftKings. Hey, man, life's a gamble. We're all, we're all gamblers. 
Columbus took a gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sam, so Sam Bradford, people within two games of watching Sam Bradford every play had diagnosed Sam Bradford. Like right. he would, but they kept on asking what's wrong with Sam Bradford, and I kept on telling them, "This is Sam Bradford. This mm-hmm. is what he looks like." You know, so so once they see Sam Bradford, they're very capable of understanding what he is. Right. But the, but then the problem is. Philadelphia also makes judgments and then sticks to them. Exactly. And they, they, as soon as they decide whether somebody is a good guy or a guy they, a guy they do like or a guy they don't like, all they see is either his strengths or his weaknesses. I mean, McNabb's the perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was at some point there was a sea change, and a lot of it, a lot of times, it happens with something off the field, which I think is probably what McNabb was, where, where he went through the whole, you know, Rush Limbaugh thing. He just said some stuff, and the oh, well, it, I think it started before that. I think the the o two o three championship game when they lost to Tampa brought a lot of latent stuff to the surface yeah. you know the whole worm ball thing and all that yeah. i think the perception went from he is the center of an ascending franchise to he is um inherently flawed and if we're going to win he's going to have to overcome his flaws right I and think the, that changed and then you saw the same thing with bradford where week to week i think an objective per- person would see the guy improving a guy who ha- hadn't played in a couple of years and you know whatever but all you saw were like the concentration on, well, you know, he under, you know, that pass wasn't perfect. You know, didn't right. you that? he's got to make that pass. I'm like, have you, you guys watch quarterback play in the NFL? Right. Like, do you, do you, did you watch Aaron Rodgers against the Carolina Panthers? Guess what? Quarterbacks aren't perfect. And right. frankly, Aaron Rodgers ain't walking through that door. You know, like if it, it, I, I said to somebody who's playing, it, you don't want Sam Bradford back next year. Who's playing quarterback? Guess what? The Houston Texans didn't want Ryan Fitzpatrick back this year. Who's playing quarterback for them? Yeah. You know, do you think they regret that? That that's the thing. You know, the NFL, there's there's four or five guys who fit this ideal that Eagles fans have been yearning for. Exactly. And, and yet they keep on cycling through quarterbacks and thinking that the next one's gonna be the guy. And right. if he's not the guy, they want to run him out of town. Well, it's just not the way it works. Right. And I, I do think there are some other factors in there. And I don't know how much this has changed over time, but I mean I can remember covering the team in two thousand two when McNabb got hurt, you know, breaks his ankle. And then Coy Detmer comes in, and he gets hurt in, the, in his very first game as the starter, and A.J. Feely comes in, and A.J. Feely rolls off oh, yeah, you know, I remember this. four wins and five starts. I think you might have been interning with the Eagles mm-hmm. and Dave Spadaro at the time in there, um, uh, you know, for their website yep. and, and all that. Yeah, they went like they went like five and two with Feely or something like that. Something like, like that, that. But, but it was a matter of, like, people's eyes told them something that wasn't happening. Right. In every single regard, the Eagles' offense was worse off with Feely than it had been with McDab. They threw for fewer yards in a game. He threw for fewer touchdowns per game. You know, the, the rushing offense was a little bit better, but it was literally a matter of their defense winning them four or five games in a row and even keeping them in the last game. I remember they, they lost to the Giants 10-7 in overtime, the last game of the season. And, um, you know, Feely, like, they scored a touchdown in the opening drive, and that was it. They didn't do anything on offense the rest of the way. And to this day, mm-hmm. you will still hear people say AJ Feely never got a fair shot to be the Eagles' quarterback. <laughs> and it's like, what, what, what do you like? What is that? Is that a rate? Is that totally a race thing? Is that well, there's just just people seeing something that they want to see in something new and shiny? I, I don't know. I don't see. I, so I think I don't think it's a race thing. I think it's, and it, it's going to sound like a race thing when I say this next thing. But but let me explain. I think in Philadelphia, uh, and, and probably everywhere. But but there's there's a complex I like to call the GGWG complex, the gritty, good looking white guy complex. Mm-hmm. Where like and I don't think it's a racial thing. I just think that 
you have this ideal of what you think an athlete should look like. And, and a lot of it is probably what the athletes looked like when, when your dad was growing up True. or, yeah. or, you know, the kind of guy, there's probably some Freudian things involved there. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some guy, probably a lot of it is the type of guy you envision your daughter bringing home and right. saying, dad, this is, you know, so-and-so, but like Zach Ertz like, on Twitter the other day is like yeah. the perfect example of it. Right. And, and people accuse me of ripping Zach Ertz. I, I it wasn't ripping Zach Ertz. It's just that like, he's, Zach, he's, he's He's, he's a jag. Like, he's yeah. just a guy. He's jag. He's just a guy right now. He's 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 the second tight end behind Brent Selleck, who's a who's a nice player, but he but he was not drafted to be the second tight end behind Brent Selleck, you know? And and Right. We're three years into I this know. and Zach Ertz isn't taking snaps yeah, away like, from Brent Selleck. You look you you look around the league and like he's just a tight end. He he's he's Owen he's like a I don't even know if I'd say Owen Daniels, you know, he's, he's yeah. but Owen Daniels, you know, is, is, is a guy that has always sprung the mind. I mean, he's just a guy like he doesn't run away from people. He doesn't run over people. He has great hands and he's a GGWG, gritty, good looking white guy. Yeah. You know? I, go ahead, John. I got two people I want to ask about in that regard, one of whom is perhaps the opposite of the GTWG. And, and I still think his legacy in Philadelphia is held back for a long time. That's Cole Hamels. Mm hmm. Uh, but he's not gritty. But but exactly, and that's why all those even years, though even though he he was gritty, yes. like that's right. But I mean, he did not come across right. As right. And, and right. it was written in in our newspapers and on Philly dot com for years about this very thing, and then he did go out and win a World Series, and all of a sudden everybody's perceptions of him changed to a even, certain even extent. I don't know how much because he was, but he won them a World Series. Is the point, and it. Finally, people came out and said, hey, no, this but guy's see, actually I would really good. I, would, no, I, I, disagree I would disagree with, with that. I don't think the perception changed. I, no, I still if, heard. If, if the perception changed, it changed back the following year when he did the bank, did the rubber chicken circuit, you know, the, uh, the banquet circuit, came back, had a lousy year, regular season, pitched terribly in game three of the World Series and basically said, I want this season to be over. That, when he's speaking honestly... And understanding, like, look, I screwed up this year. I, I didn't come in ready. And, you know, I'm pitching terribly because of it. That turned people back around on him. I, I agree think. with all of that. My point is to what it took for him to even come close to getting out of that. Yeah. How good he had to be. Yeah, but he wasn't, I mean, he was great in the 08 postseason. He was great at the end of 2007, and he was great in the 08 postseason. He was not a great pitcher up until then. Now, having said that, He's the reason that in 08 that they win the World Series. I don't think it's hard to deny that. Right. So you would think that that would give him special dispensation from that point forward. I think two things happened. Number one, I think the 09 series happened. Number two, I think when Cliff Lee came back to Philadelphia before the 2011 season, I think that had an impact on how Hamels was viewed because there's nothing that Philadelphia sports fans like more than an elite athlete who likes them more than he likes anyone else. You know, Cliff Lee picked us. He didn't pick the Yankees and New York. He didn't pick the Rangers he and Texas. He very explicitly didn't pick the Yankees. Exactly. And it's the Sally Field of the Oscars thing. You like us, you really, really like us. And so it didn't matter that Cole Hamels had accomplished more for the Phillies than Cliff Lee did. And that's not really to slight Cliff Lee. But it, it was that. It was the perception of Hamels as this California cool it's Joe Conklin on WIP in the morning, you know, painting him as this surfer guy, you know, vaguely feminine who, you know, wouldn't take the ball in a big game because he'd rather be sitting on a beach in Southern California. And it belied the fact that the guy made at least 30 starts, what, six or seven straight years, was totally reliable, could totally be counted on, was the best homegrown pitcher since Robin Robertson for this franchise. 
and the other guy to your quarterback. Well, wait, hang on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Because this is Cliff Lee is a perfect example. It is a perfect example. Like I would argue that that it even predates Cliff Lee wanting them. It was all. It was almost like 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 Philly fans were were the stalker before Cliff Lee actually right. ended up lo- like they were That's like right. the you know like. Cliff Lee is the nail eater. Like he is the epitome of the 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 GGWG. Like he yes. he is the like he is what like he's a badass. You know, like he's, he's he catches the ball yeah, like, casually in the World Series. Right, and pop exactly. Up. Like that. And then, as you said, you know, Cliff Lee wanting them. Right. Um, but but guess what? Cliff Lee cost them a World Series or cost them a a, a playoff series just as much as Cole Hamels cost them a playoff series right he got hurt when Cole Hamels never got hurt and frankly he was kind of a miserable SOB his last that's you know, right year or two here and and yet I think that when people you know 50 years from now when you ask this generation you know name your top 25 Phillies of the 2000s I think Cliff Lee people will rank Cliff Lee ahead of Cole Hamels I think you're probably right it's we're getting into something that's interesting I think in terms of the institutional memory of the region like I was having this this is a big disclaimer too because I I the media drives a lot of this so I'm not this is not about right when, when I'm talking about and market. by media, we mean yeah, us. us. We yeah. mean talk radio. We, mean, we yeah. mean TV. Like, all that stuff. Like I'm not, this is not. This is not. This is not at all. And th- and I love personally. I love this market because you know I lived in Tampa for three years and it's not like this and mm-hmm. it sucks. Right. Uh, like people, all of this comes from the passion and and frankly, I think the media, the media, this media is such a narrative driven media in mm-hmm. in this market and they're so. You know, at least in New York, you have you kind of have a diversity of voices. There's yes. a lot of different outlets here. It's just like people latch on like like. Everyone latches on to the same narrative, and it just hammers you with it. And I think it's what Chip Kelly kind of complains about when he yeah. does his sermonizing. But anyway, no, I was gonna, what I was going to say was, but this gets to the institutional memory of the region. I was having this discussion the other day uh, with a longtime high school friend of mine. You know, known him twenty, you know, more than twenty five years. The biggest Sixers fan I know. Man, and how, really smart. How old are you? I'm forty. Jeez. Um, really smart, like the smartest guy I know, and the biggest Sixers fan I know. Oh man. <laughs> and uh, he made a great point about because I'd been on WIP the other day talking about uh, the Sixers and their plan, and and you know people at the radio station are very much against the Sixers plan, and there are there's a younger generation that is very much for the idea of starting fresh and hoarding draft picks and all that stuff. So my friend pointed out, he said, you know, what you have to take into consideration is that. The people who host shows on WIP and 97.5 and the people who tend to call those shows, their memories are of Julius Irving and Doug Collins as a player and Moses Malone and Mo Cheeks and Andrew Toney. And in some cases, even before that, Wilt Chamberlain. So they remember the great Sixers. He said, our generation. Clarence Weatherspoon. Right. Our generation is Sixers Sharon fans. Sharon Wright. Sharon Wright, Clarence Sean Weatherspoon. Sean Bradley. Dana Barros as an all-star. Sean Bradley. Like, we knew misery in yeah. a way that they didn't. That's, that's a where great. We, that's actually a. I, you know what? So I, we're more likely to buy into the hoarding draft pick strategy to get great down well, the road. It's because the. the and this makes. This, is, this makes. That's like one of the most insightful things I've heard about the Sixers situation. Because the whole young old divide about it has, has like baffled me. Like, yep. otherwise old. It's like. People who I respect, who are otherwise smart and logical, just get so yep. wrapped up and, and offended by what Hinky is doing, and 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 they're like, oh, it's an embarrassment. And my first thought is always, 
Where were have you? Have you watched the Sixers? Like, like the Sixers have been an embarrassment my entire life, except for for two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what? You know, the ninety. This is the nineties, except there's going to be a reward at the end of it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that plays into all sorts of narratives that we discuss. You know, there are people who remember. Chuck Bednarik in 1960 and Norm Van Brocklin. So that informs what they think Donovan McNabb ought to be or Sam Bradford right. ought to be. There are people who remember the Phillies of the 70s, and that informs what they think the team ought to be doing now. The idea that, well, they can just, they have all this money, they have $25 billion or whatever it is with Comcast, they can just spend their way out of whatever problems they have when, in fact, they cannot because, as Murph has pointed out, you know, ad infinitum, baseball is not set up that way right. anymore. Yeah, and, and I mean the guy who who and and it's why fake WIP collar on Twitter oh, is such best. a such a uh, such a perfect microcosm of everything in this area. Not just the, not just the callers, but the hosts and the writers and you know the the podcast hosts. Uh, I'm not sure if there was a podcast, but back in Buddy Ryan's days, but his pic, his profile picture is of Buddy. It's like the quintessential Buddy Ryan picture, and every Eagles coach since Buddy Ryan has been compared to Buddy Ryan, and every Eagles coach since Buddy Ryan. Has had more success than Buddy Ryan. <laughs> yeah, that's even Rich exactly. Kotite. Even Rich Kotite, who is mocked mercilessly in two cities, in New York and Philadelphia, was was a better head coach by any measurable standard than Buddy Ryan. Except that Seth Joyner and Reggie White didn't like him as much as they liked Buddy Ryan. But that doesn't change the fact he won a playoff game. He had you know excellent teams. He had winning seasons. The guy went ten and six with. Jeff Kemp, Pat Ryan, Brad Gable starting games for him at quarterback in one season. Think about that. Well, and also think about the fact that, I mean, you want to talk about underachieving. That yeah. They, the Eagles had one of the best defenses in NFL history. A quarterback who, at you know, 50 years old almost took the Vikings to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like, he didn't win a playoff game. No. You know, I, I mean. Take, well, take, he did with Kotite. He won a Saint. He beat. Oh the no, Saints. no! I'm talking about. I'm talking about Buddy Ryan did not oh, win a Buddy playoff Ryan, game yes. with that whole, with that okay. cast of characters. Right. One of the best defensive NFL history. A quarterback who took another team to to the brink of the Super Bowl uh, when he was well past his prime. Mm-hmm. And, and Buddy Ryan could not put. You know, we're really like, we're 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 really uh, we're not we're not we're not buttering up our fan base right now. <laughs> no, but and that's this, fine. This is what I, I've been meaning to ask you for the last couple of minutes because to me. In terms of placing guys on the GGWG scale, we placed Cole Hamels, we placed a bunch of other people. When you were talking earlier about the ideal quarterback and what that means, where is Eli Manning? Because he's a guy who, at least from my reading of the Eagles fan base, I'm not an Eagles fan as people know, but as I watch this all the time, I'm not sure of anybody who I know on any other team in the National Football League who makes Eagles fans angrier in various ways, because the Giants have won Super Bowls and so forth. But everybody thinks Eli Manning is not that good. So where do you place Eli Manning on the scale? No, I mean, I, th- I don't even think he I, – I, I don't know that he even is a is – a, I don't even know if he's on the spectrum. Because, A, he kind of has like – he kind of combines a lot of different things. Where, where yeah. He's got the mope, he's got the dopiness of, of – On the one right. hand, he looks like Napoleon Dynamite. Right. On the other hand he, – He's played poorly against the Eagles. He has played poorly often against the Eagles. And yet he's won two Super Bowls. A, two Super Bowls. B, tough, like never misses a game. I mean, he's he has been under center, what, every game since he became their starter in 2004, I think. I don't know that he's missed a start. Uh, think about that. He won a Super Bowl with Kevin 
Gilbride yeah. as his offensive coordinator. I mean, that's incredible. And it wasn't just, you know, we I've had this, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, one of the things I'm, uh, the Super Bowl, defining quarterbacks by Super Bowl discussion mm. is one that can drive you crazy. And one point that I always bring up in that regard is, think about Brett Favre versus Donovan McNabb. Both of them played in a Super Bowl against the Patriots. One of them happened to play the Patriots when they had Drew Bledsoe, and the other one happened to play the Patriots when they had Tom Brady. Who won that Super? Who won his Super Bowl and who lost his Super Bowl? Okay, uh, uh, so the, the Super Bowl argument just drives me bonkers. drives me crazy. But and, and okay, yes. but but if we're going to use that as a baseline, Eli Manning beat Tom Brady twice yeah. with clutch plays at the end of each game. So there, I think Murph is right. I think there's a lot of mixed. There's like we can mock him, but we're envious of him, and we're we kind of grudgingly acknowledge that he can be really really good and. I think if you shot up an Eagles fan up with sodium pentothal, they take Eli Manning anytime. Well, Eli's also his first. I, and I made this comparison earlier in the year. If you look at his first fifty-five game, I only only do fifty-five games because that's how many Sam Bradford had at the time when I I compared the two. But Eli's first fifty-five games, his numbers were equal or worse than Bradford's. I mean, we're talking fifty-five percent completion yeah. percentage, one-to-one interception ratio. Uh, you know, so there's Eli's just like he, he's actually one of the most unique quarterbacks in it. Like he's going to be. The, the debate over him in the Hall of Fame is just going to be a rager because he's. I just don't know how you can quantify Eli Manning. I don't know. So, he is like the 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 test the, the the prime example of how it's impossible to evaluate a quarterback outside of his situation. That's right. And and what's interesting about the quantifying thing, I would argue Eli Manning had the most underrated great season in the history of NFL quarterbacks. The year coming off of the lockout in 2011. You had three guys that year throw for 5,000 yards, which had never happened, you know, had happened what once in the league prior to that. He did not. He threw for, I, I remember this number, he threw for 4,933 yards. But he had 33 touchdown passes, and his team won the Super Bowl. Now think about that season. Think about that. The guy threw for 4,900 yards, 33 touchdowns, and his team won the Super Bowl. With Kevin Gilbride. With Kevin Gilbride as, as his offensive quarter. Nobody talks about that. Yeah, nobody it, talks about it ever, and it is an incredibly great season. To so have. I got the, the the Super Bowl. My blood pressure is already going because anytime anybody mentions a Super Bowl argument, yeah. it just gets me so worked up. First of all, because it's impossible to argue against, right? Because you know, I mean, it's not impossible to argue against. You just point to all the quarterbacks who have won Super Bowls and say uh, Trent Dilfer won as many as Brett Favre and Aaron right. Rodgers. You know, like it, it's it's a completely illogical argument, but at the same time it's like an argument that makes a lot of populist sense. Sure. So, it's like having this, and that's what we're doing. It's like having this Trump car that you just smashed, yeah. you know, playing yeah. pinochle. Boom. So, Super Bowl. So I'm on deal I, with that. Yo. So yeah. I'm, I'm on com. I was on, uh, Philly. Oh, I was there. Yes. Go I, ahead. I was on Philly sports. Were you there? Did you, were you watching? I was that? watching from the background. Uh, yes. So who was that? Seth Joyner? Ike Reese. Oh, it was Ike Reese. Oh, so, <laughs> so they asked, they asked the question was, who was your top five? You know, no, the question was, Frankly, I think it was even a dumb question to begin with because it was, is Peyton Manning in your top five of all time? And I think Peyton Manning, up until the, uh, I mean, up until these last couple of years when he's essentially been Joe Montana with the Chiefs, like I would have put him as my number. I like, I, I used to go crazy arguing for Peyton Manning over Tom Brady, even though it, it, it you know, mm-hmm. you flip a coin. But like, like Peyton Manning, you look at his situation with the Colts. Everyone forgets that Tom Brady had the best defense in the NFL for his first five or six years, and, and the best, and more importantly, the best offensive line in the NFL for the, you know, and 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 the best coach in NFL, you know, one of the best coaches in NFL history. And again, 
all things being equal, I have no problem putting Tom Brady as your best quarterback of all time. But the argument kept on coming back to how many Super how right. many Super Bowls has Peyton Manning won? I'm like, do you guys remember the playoff game, the playoff, the, the years where he would the Pittsburgh Steelers would just blitz him into oblivion. The game, the, the the game where he was sacked like ten times and he sat behind the podium and said, "I'm trying to be a good teammate here." Yeah, like everyone, there's this like weird revisionist history with with. Uh, Peyton Manning that suggests that he had all this talent and Tom Brady had none when if you actually look at it I mean he had he had he had the type of talent that could very easily be codependent on Peyton Manning right. you know like is Marvin Harrison Marvin Harrison if Peyton Manning's not his quarterback maybe I thought Marvin Harrison was a good player but you know Reggie Wayne very possible that he's a guy a guy you know I mean again Peyton Manning did not have an offensive line or defense or frankly he never had a head coach I mean Tony Dungy's a decent guy, but Jim Caldwell is like putting a mattress with a headset on, you know, yeah. like he's just like, he stands there. Right. Um, but anyway, but like, I just, Ike wasn't having it. No, yeah. no. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I like the guy and, and the guy who's getting to that point right now is Aaron Rodgers. That's where right. anyone, and to me, he is the, he is the definitive case destroyer of the Super Bowl argument because anybody who has ever watched any amount of football and, and anybody who has even never watched football, if you put Aaron Rodgers in front of him, and have him play football along with all these other guys, that person will say, I'll take that guy. That's right. And That's right. he's only won one Super Bowl, and he's done it, my opinion, is because Mike McCarthy is that bad of a coach. Um, but he's only won one Super Bowl. The fact of the matter is it's hard to win more than one Super Bowl. How many yeah. quarterbacks have done it? That's right. I mean, That's if right. we're going to hold everybody to that standard, yeah. I, I can't even make sense when I talk about this. No, because it's, it's understandable. So, and, it's so frustrating to and me. And again, to bring us back to where we sort of kind of started this with respect to Mark Sanchez. I think the bottom line is when it comes to quarterbacks, people really see what they want to see based on some kind of criteria they have in their mind about what a quarterback is supposed to be. I think with respect to Sanchez and the Eagles right now, people see the fast offense and they say, that's what Chip Kelly wants. Mark Sanchez is faster in this offense than Sam Bradford or Nick Foles. Therefore, Sanchez is the best option. And it doesn't matter that Mark Sanchez, when push comes to shove, will anticipate Miles Austin breaking open even when he's not going to break open. And he will throw the ball in that situation and he will do it every and, time. And this is my point. Like, this is actually the best. This is the best game. This was the best game for Mark Sanchez to have um, because it was exactly in certain respects like the games that people roasted Sam Bradford for down to hitting your running back in the back because he ran, you know, looking like you're not on the same page with your right. receivers. It was in, in a quarter and a half, he looked like everything that people complained about Sam Bradford for, with exception. Sam Bradford's interceptions, I, I, was, I would say on this podcast and in the paper that I gave him a pass because they were at least interceptions where you looked at it and you're like, it's not because the game's moving too fast for him. It's not because... He didn't see a guy, you know, he didn't see a level of the defense or he didn't see a safety lurking or a linebacker. He either made a bad, he, he mechanically made a bad throw and it got picked off or he just made a, you know, he, he decided he could do something in a certain situation that he should not have decided to do. Whereas Sanchez, there's none of that. It's just right. like, <laughs> you know, well, well, I mean, case in point, and I that mean, is the best moment in this podcast <laughs> history to date. Look at the, look at the last two games that Bradford played coming off of the bye, you know, I always feel like when a team goes into a bye week, you hear a lot of smoke and talk about what work each individual player does going coming out of the bye. And 
ahead of the Cowboys game that they won two weeks ago where Bradford played clearly his best game of the season, wasn't close. There was a lot of talk of Bradford having fixed his footwork. Mm-hmm. and You know, working with the quarterback's coach and, and watching tape and getting it down. Well, guess what? In that game and in the Dolphins game, he had fixed his footwork. Yeah. His He was excellent in both those games the when fact, he had a little bit of time to throw the, the ball. The fact that he went 19 of 25 when they were essentially playing 10 on 11. I mean, Nanakamsu was in the backfield on every... He, he ran through three guys on the interior of the Eagles offensive line on every play. And the fact that Sanchez... I was looking at Sanchez or uh, Bradford's Bradford. numbers at the end of the game... I'm like, man, like, yeah. why, why do people keep on saying that, thank God, Sam Bradford got hurt? I, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. And uh, sorry. No, I mean, I, I just, I don't get it. And I think, again, it comes back to, you know, that veneer, that appearance of the offense goes fast with Bra- with Sanchez. Um, you know, he's he's kind of frenetic out there. He's pump faking. He's, he's dashing this way. He's running back that way. He's, you know, but throwing the ball like he's throwing darts in a bar and getting Jordan Matthews almost killed. Let's, we haven't even brought that up. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many times a game do you see Sanchez just, you know, hang a receiver out to dry? And again, this happens time and time again. And, I can tell you how many times this happened with the Jets in the 2012 and, season too. And the, the, interesting to, the interesting thing to me, for anybody who, uh, anybody who thinks that Chip Kelly might actually agree with, with the notion he was so he was so quick to throw Mark Sanchez on oh, the yeah. bus. Oh yeah! Oh god, yeah! Dude, and every time you ask him about Mark Sanchez, it's almost like it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Like mm-hmm. the guy's just like, yeah, we got Mark. You know, like he competed. You know, yeah. like what? Like <laughs> I mean, Sam Bradford. Every time you asked Chip Kelly about him, it's the Sam's getting better. You know, we think Sam's not a problem. We, we, we like our quarterback play, and then all of a sudden, Mark Sanchez goes in there. It's Chip, Chip Kelly palpably and viscerally misses Sam Bradford and thinks that they're a worse team without him. And say what you will about the guy, but he made a decision on Nick Foles that apparently another NFL head coach agrees with. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, I'm not saying that his moves as general manager ha- have been great, but I am saying that he, he's shown to be a decent self scout of his own talent. I yeah. mean, Todd Harriman's got benched by, uh, Todd Harriman's got Colts. benched by the Colts who are even, who almost got Andrew Luck killed. Um, Evan Mathis was on the free agent market forever, ended up signing, you know, a bottom rate deal with, right. you know, I, I mean, I think Chip Kelly knows again, once, once he has it in front of him, I think he is a pretty good judge of, of what works for him and what doesn't. Well, that's, and, and that leads us to what I think is a really interesting question, which is, you know, we wondered early in this season about whether Chip would do that very thing, whether he would learn from what was in front of his face. Um, and it seemed to work for a little while. You know, they kind of straightened themselves out for a while there, and then you have the game against the Dolphins when everything, you know, goes Mm. to pot. But the broader question I wonder about is whether he will, you know, because the the Belichick comparison gets made so often because Kelly clearly is patterning himself after Belichick. And it took Belichick getting fired in Cleveland and then eventually getting Tom Brady, stumbling into Tom Brady before he became Bill Belichick you know, evil genius. So I wonder if Kelly is going to go through kind of a similar evolution. If, if whether, is it all it's going to be is him getting a great quarterback, no matter how he gets him, whether he stumbles into him or whether he, you know, they go five and 11 one year and draft high enough that they can get one. Um, or whether he just, you know, he goes away for a while 
and then comes back and has learned it, all his it, lessons it, and applies them for someone else. It's going to be very interesting because, especially when you look at the situation that's unfolding on the offensive line, um, I mean, they don't have anybody um, to put between Jason Kelsey and Lane Johnson next year. No. Uh, I mean, if Jason, Jason Peters, I think when he signed his extension, the hope was that he would play through next year. But I mean, the guys missed, you know, the guy, first of all, he, 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 and I don't think it's Jason Peters fault. I think it's his body's fault, but he was not very good in any game except for one or one or two Mm -hmm. before he got hurt, you know, missed a little bit about that Redskins game. I think it was. Yeah. Um, And now he's got a degenerative back condition. He's missed the last two and a half games. I mean, it's just not look, I don't think you can, if you were to say uh, what's going to give you more value, the six and a half million dollars you would save by cutting Jason uh, Peters and, or keeping spend, him around. Or keeping him around. At this point, I think the odds would be on cutting him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and then at that point, you're left with what, right? At that point, the quote unquote makeshift offensive line that you have right now is your starting offensive line. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, everybody's pointed it out, but it's true. It's the most disappointing, I think, aspect of what, you know, the Daily News agenda thing the other day was, was what's your biggest gripe with Chip Kelly as GM? And everybody cited the offensive line. And it's true. And it's particularly true because, you know, I was okay with them not drafting a lineman because at the time you have Johnson on the right, Peters on the left, you've committed all this money to Peters um, and you can find interior linemen. You've got Kelsey in the middle, obviously, so you're not replacing him anytime soon. You can find interior linemen who are undrafted guys who can play. And so I went into it thinking like, I'll bet there are half a dozen to a dozen undrafted guys out there, free agents, whoever, who you can sign and find and they'll be better than Andrew Gardner and Alan Barber. They just will. And then they came back with Andrew Gardner yeah. and Alan Barber. And it's like really and like... Cut Evan Ma- yeah, and then, and uh, cutting Evan Mathis too. Like, uh, you know, who are you? Like John Moffitt, a guy who hadn't played in a year and a half, was the best you could do in terms of finding somebody with some experience? And, and I mean, in fairness to Kelly, this, this, this predates... It, it predates him. I, I wrote today about just, just the kind of the draft... Quant- right. quantity that they've they've accumulated and and the fact of the matter is they've only drafted two since 2010 they've only drafted two offensive linemen in the first four rounds of the draft which mm-hmm. is just not it, i mean the law the law of large numbers applies somewhat to the draft sure. where there's a there, in any game of chance and the draft is a very big game game of chance the more shots that you take the, the more higher the make. likelihood that one of them is going to hit and the eagles just haven't given themselves a shot and again you know, there, there, there's opportunity costs here. This is, you know, it's a zero-sum thing. Like, they, they needed to rebuild their defense, and they've actually done a very good job of that. But it's come at the expense of, right. you know, I mean, like, it's just one of those things where, where the Danny Watkins, the, the combination of the Danny Watkins and Marcus Smith picks just kill them. Kill them. Like, you, you got to hit on at least 50% of your, your first-round picks, and yeah. you can't, get, you, especially in that range, like, you got to get a guy who's at least going to be a depth piece for you. And, yes. and Marcus Smith, and obviously, I don't know what Danny Watkins is doing right now, but... He's fighting a fire somewhere. Yeah, I well, think. The, there could be a fire for him to fight on the offense. The uh, Phillies, Eagles... <laughs> Eagles uh, that was actually a very good... Uh, the Phillies offensive line is a great I, I, completely, I completely ruined that, and I feel like that was an awfully clever thing that <laughs> I had was. to say. It was, um, but, but it was. But look at it. I mean, who is going to play offensive line for these guys? I haven't looked at the free agent market, um, but I, I think either, that... Uh, it, and, and the question I have... I can't figure out, Kelly... Uh, I can't figure out his personnel strategy because on the one one hand he goes into a season, you know, with Miles Austin and and Riley Cooper as his outside receivers, which I've said all year, 
is the number one problem with this offense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of of you know, and it was the number one problem early on where they were only getting five yard completions. But anyway, on the one hand, he'll he'll do that. But on the other hand, if you look at the you know, he's drafted three wide receivers in the first you know couple of rounds of the draft. Now one of them happened to be Josh Huff, but. So he clearly values something out of the wide receiver position. The guard position is one of those that's that's like for a guy who thinks that big guys beat up little guys and, you know, running the ball is where it's at in the NFL. Like that he isn't paid awfully scant attention to the offensive line and more more so than that, almost treats guards as if it's like it's interchangeable. Yeah, like it doesn't matter. Like yeah. it, like when he cut Evan Mathis, I Harriman's was an obvious cut clearly. But, but when he cut Mathis, I was like, well, I guess this guy thinks that, you know, you know, Evan Mathis is replaceable and a lot of guards are replaceable. And, and you know, I'm not sure. I think he's learning that that's not the case. Like, I think I think if you looked at that Dallas game, I don't I don't know that the offensive line played as well as everyone thinks. Kelly did a lot of things to to get to freeze Greg Hardy, you know, yes. like he would fake, he would play fake to his side where he had the responsibility to right. like hold up. And, you know, he, Kelly called a very good game. And, and, and even early on in that Dolphins game, and I asked Lane Johnson about this, um, and like in those first, that first quarter, you know, they were doing a lot of things that was get, that were getting, that was getting Sue and the offensive line moving left to right yep. instead of north and south. Right. Bradford rolls out on yeah. like three or four of his first and it, five passes. And, and like then, and Lane Johnson and, and Johnson kind of nodded his head. He's like, yeah, he's like, at some point your luck runs out and you got to beat them, you know, like that's, it's just, and that's, and I, I still don't know that I, I, Kelly sometimes seems to think that he can just outsmart, outsmart everybody else and out scheme everybody else. And as long as we execute, well, guess what? It's the NFL. You're not going to execute every play. And when you throw Dennis, when you throw, uh, you know, even Jason Kelsey, who's very small for a center, um, when you throw him and and Tobin and Barbie out there against Nanakam Sue, one of the most physically dominant football players of all time, it don't matter what play you're going to go. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So bringing this full circle, and I'm getting close to kind of wrapping it up, I think, uh, you know, starting with the, going back to the original question, which was which team in, in town is closest to getting to the playoffs again. Um, I think we both agree that the Eagles could make the playoffs this year. It would be something of a hollow journey right. or destination if they did um, because they're as wide open as the NFC might be they're going to run into a team that's going to be just physically better than they it are. It would be the equivalent of the Flyers making the playoffs. Right, right. Um, as I said earlier, I think the, the Flyers could make the playoffs as soon as next season. A, because it's easier to make the playoffs in the NHL than just about anywhere else. B, because uh, you know, as I as I teased all you hockey fans out there earlier, um, I love what I've seen of Shane Gossespierre so far, and if there is right about guys like Travis Sanheim and you know Ivan Pronorov and all these guys, that uh, um, they'll be in good shape for the future. These guys sounds like 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 uh, characters in Rocky Five to me. I a little even... bit, a little bit, but that's uh, you know I'm I'm a hockey junkie, and so's John. So I was going to say about Gossespierre. Um, Didn't can't he, they keep he, him up this time instead of sending him back down? He's clearly shown that he can. Play they this have time. to keep him up. He's their he's their most exciting player right now. He is their best offensive defenseman. There's no drawback to to keeping him up here now. So there who's, is who's, all, who's out then when when you find come back. You, you find one of these brand Manning somebody get rid of him goodbye. Um, let this kid play. Let him grow. You, you we've been talking throughout this show about sort of the stereotypical Philadelphia sports fan and and their view of the various teams and how there's a generational shift in what's going on. 
most of the Flyers fans who I follow on Twitter are closer to our age than the older generation. And they all want to see the young guys yeah. out on the ice and, and sort of get have a little bit of a trial by fire. And if, as you said, if Gostas Bahir is any indication, um, I, I can't tell you whether Sanheim and Marin and the other guys are ready yet, but play the kids. Why not at this point? What have well, they got to lose? Well, I think, I think what you're getting at is something we've discussed earlier, and I think it applies to the Flyers, the Sixers, and the Phillies in a way it doesn't apply to the Eagles just because of the nature of the NFL, which is I think for fans of those other three franchises, particularly the younger generation of fans, you know, let's say like 40 and under, they want to see the young guys grow. Um, they don't have an issue with what the Sixers are doing. Um, they don't have a problem with the Flyers saying, you know what, if we miss the playoffs a couple of years because that's how long it takes this core of young defensemen to get to the point where they can lead us somewhere, that's fine. Um, same thing with the Phillies. You know, let's not, I mean, for how many years were, you know, people of our age saying, you've got to move on from these, this core of old guys. You've got to, it's better to get rid of a guy too soon than to hang on to him too long. Which and, the Eagles have been doing a lot over the years, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joe Banner was great. Joe Banner was great at that. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's a, that's a, that's a big theme in the market now. And I do think that there is kind of a generational divide there because, you know, fans of an older generation pre, you know, I, I have this discussion with my father all the time. He's, he's uh, 67 years old and he grew up here, fan of all the teams. And I, I just will say to him like, dad, this is the salary cap era. You can't go all in all the time. It just doesn't work that that's way. That's what anymore. I was about to say. I think that like, you know, thinking about, generational things it just kind of dawned on me that this this generation i think is conditioned to think in terms of economic yep. terms where the previous generation you know that was not a consideration right. i mean the yankees probably had fielded a triple a team that could have you know finished second in the world series some years before that's right they, because they could just spend more money than everybody else to to create the, that team but we're it's kind of just you know we're conditioned you know we come up from such a certain age all all our lives essentially everything that we've heard about sports has been related to salary. Um, and so we're just kind of conditioned to, to view things in those terms. And, and then what's kind of like self-evident and second nature to us, I think, just doesn't register with people who spent, you know, their first 50 years, you know, being conditioned by the way athletes, you know, it's, it's all about whatever they do on the field and that's all that matters and go out. And, you know, somebody even yesterday, um, one of my Phillies followers asked me, you know, he said, you know, it seems like the Eagles, you know, make make a lot of decisions based on money for a team, you know, you know, that's so rich. I'm like, well, that's that's, that's how the they nature. have to. And yeah. that's the whole thing with the Sixers. It's like, all right, well, you know, the, the problem with the NBA isn't necessarily that um, I don't even know that Sam Hink. I, I think Sam Hinkie obviously wants high draft picks, but I think really it's less about it, it, it's more about avoiding locking yourself yes. into a con like. It's avoiding signing Andre Iguodala for five years that then when you do have a window prevents you from, you know, getting Taking somebody this, who's right. worth a max deal. Right. And that's, you know, I think tanking is almost secondary to to flexibility, flexibility. And, and it's not it, it it's the draft picks are important, but it's more so not signing Josh Smith to, you know, right. a max contract. Goes back to what you and I discussed on on video a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago when Keith Pompey wrote the piece about how the agents are trying to foist all these veteran point guards on the Sixers, and the Sixers are saying no, which you and I both agree with, except you hope that down the road it doesn't burn their relations with the agents. And I was thinking in terms of ranking the teams and when they're going to make the playoffs, if the Sixers in, the, in next year's draft get a good young point guard, 
the overwhelming majority of the Eastern Conference in the NBA is putrid. And that eight spot, as the Brooklyn Nets have demonstrated a couple times in recent years, is not as far out of reach for a team that does get a point guard in as some might think. And the other thing I would say, and, and I've thought this about the Sixers for years, and every time I've brought it up uh, with uh, various members of the media who wish that they would you know, sign some players that they've heard of, it's been the same reaction that they've ended up agreeing with me. If Derrick Rose doesn't tear his ACL in that series and the Sixers get run off the floor and they don't come within, as they so famously said, one win of the Eastern Conference Finals, surely what's going on now is a lot more tolerated right. than it would have Absolutely. been. Absolutely. And that, was a, but that it, run was a complete fluke in so yeah. many ways. But again, it also goes back to, uh, and, it, and it, this kind of like throws a little bit of, of uh, cold, cold, water. cold water on the GGWG uh, mm-hmm. theory, but like there's also like, the R guy, like Eddie Stefanski. Oh God, you know, the the we, uh, we like having a GM who's eating pizza at Mac and Manco's thing. We like yeah. a guy that sounds like us. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, and again, That's, this is I, this is almost this that especially is more the media than anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Stefanski was the media. Like like they pine for the days of Ed Stefanski because they could like sit down to him and talk right, to him. because they remembered him as a color commentator doing big five games on prison right, as I say, if you want to talk to Ed Stefanski go to the palestra where he's sitting with Ed Rendell right, on Saturday. right I mean you know you hear this and, and it almost doesn't matter in a way whether Sam Hinkie is a good general manager or a bad general manager he is a silent general manager and he looks evil and, and, and he does not do the whole go along to get along thing that so many people in this media market play and you- and it's just true. He looks and, like Pinky in the Brain. That's yeah. part of his. Like he, he's always. He looks like he's like, not not evil was about, was the wrong word, but he just looks like he's up to no good. You know, like he just kind of sits there silent. He like kind of like. Yeah, and he uh, does. You know? I mean, he doesn't care whether you rip him for not talking. He doesn't care. Like he's good. Just, he's not going to talk. That's fine. Uh, and, yeah. You know, and if that infuriates people, okay. Like that doesn't mean he's a good general manager. It doesn't mean he's a bad general manager. It just means you're using the wrong metric to evaluate him. And the Sixers as a general manager. I think. I mean, if Joel Embiid is the one who's kind of that, that draft. I shouldn't. I should say that them having to draft Joel Embiid kind of threw this whole thing off because if Joel Embiid's healthy this year, I, I mean, this then then you're in your window and you're out trying to sign some guys and right. you're in the playoffs this year probably given right. the way the Eastern Conference is. So I think, as Jonathan said, it very could well be the Sixers next year making the playoffs. I think the Sixers have the biggest potential to make the biggest jump. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. You know, if you're going to get if they end up with the four first round picks. Uh, next year, if they do end up with the number one overall pick, right now it looks like this kid at LSU, Ben Simmons, six ten kid, you know, is the prospective number one pick in the draft. Who, as Brett Brown has been talking about over the last couple of days, he's got some connections. Exactly. To so um, the the potential is there. It's just it's hard for everybody to to see it right now. Yeah, and so. it still comes down to again, like as we saw with the MB draft, it comes down to luck yeah. on that last. You Absolutely. Know, and that's you know, there's a big there's there's such a huge difference between one and three in the in the NBA draft. You know. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, anyway, we'll uh, we'll tackle more of that next week when you know the Sixers will have lost three or four more games, and um, we'll find out exactly what Jameis Winston has when uh, when the Eagles play the Bucks on uh, on Sunday. And we'll hopefully not not encounter a riotous mob of people outside our studio after they listen to this podcast, and uh, led by Angelo Catali and Howard S. Exactly. We love. Hey, you know. He, he, he who commits the, what is it? He without sin cast the first, first stone. stone. I'm throwing, right. the large number of these stones are thrown at the media. Believe That's me. right. That's right. So anyway, for, uh, for Dave Murphy, I'm Mike Sealski. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.